Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Manuela Veloso. Manuela is the head of AI research at J.P. Morgan Chase and a professor at Carnegie Mellon University. Manuela, welcome to the Twimble AI podcast. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. It is wonderful to get a chance to speak with you. You are uh, currently in New York City, where you are recording this from your home on lockdown. How are things there? Uh, so again, uh, we are on lockdown. We are, I'm in the apartment, you know, and uh-huh. uh, I've been here for three weeks, but surprisingly I continue to be very productive in terms of work because with all our virtual, uh, meetings, everything seems to be going quite well. What is challenging is to exercise and to make sure that you get some fresh air and some sun. So, but from the work point of view, I miss my team, but we have a lot of Zoom meetings Mm -hmm. that seem to be very successful. Did you work from home quite a bit beforehand or is this a transition for you? So Sam, uh, I came to the United States in 84 and I've never worked from home ever. Wow. (laughs) I know, I know, I know, I know. I mean, it was like these like, uh, you know, getting up in the morning, making our bed, getting ready and just leave every morning and then come back in the evening. So this is quite new to me to be here at home every day, but somehow it has been working. Yeah. Are you finding yourself more or less productive? That like, how, how do you compare your level of productivity with this new uh, way of working? Uh, I think that uh, with the setup we created at JP Morgan in which we try to have a lot of meetings so that eventually we see each other as often as possible. I think it's working fine. I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not 100% sure in three weeks if we are still uh, in the same productive chain. But I think we have been quite productive. I mean, more than what I thought the first couple of days. I thought, <laughs> you know, I thought I would like be eating all day in the kitchen or doing my laundry or something. What is this of being home? Uh-huh. But no, I'm in my office. I have uh, the computer and I'm literally in my office from, you know, eight in the morning to six in the afternoon. So, wow. yeah. Well, yeah. It, I'm glad to hear that everything is going well on your end. Um, Thank you. Why don't we jump into your background? You are sure. currently on leave from Carnegie Mellon CMU. Uh, where you were faculty in the Department of Computer Science. Tell us a little bit about your background, how you got involved and interested and involved in machine learning research and your kind of broad research interests. Yeah, yeah. so this is like uh, very nice to explain. So somehow as as a kid, I got very much interested in math. Math was really what I like, arithmetic from arithmetic all the way to calculus or everything. Math is what I wanted, what I like to do. In fact, I thought I would become a math teacher when I was like, what, 14, 13, 15 years old. And uh, my father is a mechanical engineer and my mom also kept saying, no, you should be an engineer. So I became an electrical (laughs) engineer 
and uh, also very happy with the amount of math I had there. And it was very interesting. And okay, that's how I became an electrical engineer. And in fact, I am one of the people that I never read a single science fiction uh, book. I didn't like science fiction movies. (laughs) Zero, zero. So I'm not uh, at all this typical kid that loves computers and robots and aliens and Star Treks and companies. Zero. (laughs) It's true. true. I only cared about this math and what it could do for you in your uh, daily life. And a lot of like uh, interested on teaching math to people. Very, very kind of thing. And then when I finished, just, I'm just going to tell you what made me like a change in some sense. So when I finished my uh, undergrad degree, I was still in Lisbon. So I, was a, I am from Portugal, from Lisbon. And I uh, was involved in a master thesis in electrical and computer engineering in a project that was in the early 80s, very, very innovative, in which we had to buy computers and automate the production of a company of a line uh, that so the, the the actual there was a company that produced it freezers and refrigerators just a manufacturing company and all the the orders inventory tracking everything was done manually and so we were supposed to work on how do we computerize digitalize all that that's very early that sounds like a great project i know i mean i still i mean i i, I this was fantastic and then through this, through uh, talking with people, so how do you represent these? How do you write that? How do you generate a list of parts? How do you do this? Or do, oh, how do you do that? I became fascinated by what computers could actually do in terms of representing knowledge, in terms of search, in terms of learning from feedback, in terms of accumulating data in a digital way. I mean, so that was the beginning of AI for me, was basically this engineering of getting like the functioning that used to be done manually done by machines. Mm-hmm. So that's basically no really wanting to understand how does the brain work or how do nothing like that. It was this functional engineering goal of getting these computers to do more than just numerical computations, but to capture behavior, choices, learning, data. I mean, fascinating kind of like two years of my life in which I became in love with AI. Wow. Yeah. And so that was after undergrad. How did you then um, yeah. develop that interest? So then I was uh, finished my master's, and uh, for family reasons, we came to the United States, and I did another master's in computer science now uh, at uh, Boston University, and then I applied for a PhD in computer science and I went to Carnegie Mellon. And at Carnegie Mellon, if you think about Carnegie Mellon, that's like the, I mean, I, without offending anybody, but in those days, that's the mecca of AI, you know? So it was Herb Simon there, Alan Newell, Raj Reddy, Jaime Carbonell, Tom Mitchell, Jeff Hinton in those days was there, Mark Raybert. I mean, it was all these people that thought nothing else than AI. Literally, uh, I remember when I came uh, in '86. There was this uh, uh, meeting of the incoming students, and uh, the faculty would present themselves. And there was uh, Raj Reddy that walked into the room and said, "Hey, kids, 
imagine if all these walls, these cement walls, would be displaying live the best masterpieces of the Louvre. This was like before we even had wireless. <laughs> I'm telling you, it was all about thinking big. And Alan, you were saying in 1987 or 86, what if all the people in their dorms could log into their computers and be able to know whatever is happening everywhere? And we were like, oh, my God. <laughs> you know, it's true. So I came here to the United States, first in Boston, and then I landed at Carnegie Mellon. And I thought, where am I? I mean, this world of computers doing it all was fascinating. At the same time that we were like trying to be chess, them, Kasparov, and all this chess playing and all sorts of, you know, anyways, Carnegie Mellon was, uh, for me, and I mean, throughout the time I was there, like this place where we dream big and we get amazing things accomplished. And just so you know, actually also in 1986, when I came to CMU, there were already autonomous cars there. And uh, in fact, there was this car that was uh, coming down the campus. And in the morning we would see by the library. And then in the evening when we would leave, it had moved like, I don't know, maybe like, a hundred feet, I don't know. And it was supposed to be a big accomplishment that the thing had moved that far by itself. And this is the late 80s. So that's how I grew this, uh, I mean, uh, grew this passion for AI was a product of Carnegie Mellon and this mm -hmm. dreaming big of all the things that machines could actually do. And it was fascinating thing. Well, it sounds like an amazing environment and time mm -hmm. to, to yeah. be there. So fast forward to your faculty yes. career. What you know, tell us a little bit about your research interests. Yes. So, in some sense, I build an interest always on uh, co building complete AI systems. A lot of my research has been on trying to connect uh, the perception part with the cognition part and with the action. Perception, cognition, and action. I think that that first slide has been in my talk since for always, because in some sense, uh, also following up on things that Alan Newell was telling us, AI has been a science of components, natural language processing, vision processing, planning, search, machine learning, speech recognition. So it's it has been a, a science of lots of interests, lots of dimensions. And I always thought that it would be good to put it all together as an agent that could do like the vision and not just the vision to classify this as a cup, but then to pick it up and not just to pick it up, but then to actually take it somewhere and not to take it, not to take it somewhere, but actually to execute, not just plan, but execution and all the problems of perception, cognition and action. And that led me to spend all my life, all my life building autonomous robots so I've built a lot of autonomous robots, not necessarily autonomous cars. I never worked that much in outdoors robotics. I worked in indoor robotics. And my passion was not necessarily on manipulation, but on mobility. So from robot soccer to uh, mobile robots in the environment, I've built uh, you know, tons of different robots that moved, interacted with people, could see the could see actually uh, could do perception in real time, detect an orange ball in Robocop uh, or other things. So I so I've been uh, I spent all my life building autonomous robots capable of this perception, 
cognition, deciding where to go, and actually going. Uh, and uh, that's what I've done in the late 90s. Uh, we started, mid-90s, so we started, I co-founded this RoboCup initiative in which robots would play soccer uh, in different leagues and all sorts of like different conditions. But basically the fascination was the autonomy. Even today, when I look at videos from robot soccer, the only thing I appreciate is thinking there was all done, it was all done by an algorithm. It was all done by algorithms. It was all automated. It's not exactly just the learning part, but it's actually the uh, the ability to frame a whole problem into something that the computer can actually do from beginning to end. And uh, that can you, I don't think we've talked about the RoboCup challenge uh, on the podcast previously. Can you frame the, yes. the problem for us? I think you know, my exposure to it has primarily been through watching blooper reels, which probably isn't representative no. of <laughs> no. you know, the, you know, the research accomplishment. Yeah. So uh, Robot Soccer started around like 94, uh, 93, 92. And uh, then the first competition, actual competition, was in 1997 in Japan. And basically was uh, the... um, So think about those days. In the 90s, uh, there was like the the blooming of the internet. A lot of like, uh, you know, competitions on speech recognition, text understanding... And the physical world uh, was not as much the focus in those days uh, of what AI was doing. And uh, Robot Soccer came about to, uh, to address this problem of, uh, of uh, processing information, but at the physical world level. So Robot Soccer came about, in fact, as a challenge also for multi-robot reasoning. The robots had to work in a team. They had to be able to... Uh, have an algorithm that looks at the field, at the playing field, and decides where to pass the ball, and eventually had a very concrete goal, which was winning. So you mm-hmm. have to really score these goals. So that has motivated uh, thousands and thousands of people. RoboCup is even as of today, it happens every year, and it brings people. It's limited the number of teams that can come, but it's more than three thousand people every year that come from all over the world. And the beautiful thing about RoboCup is these autonomous. They are all autonomous. There is nobody joysticking these robots. There is nobody like uh, telling anything to the robots. The the complete system has to be autonomous. Hmm. Anyway, at the beginning, they barely moved. Uh, Now, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's true. They barely moved. Uh, We had a big problem with this connection of the perception and the reasoning. By the time we had the robot decide to go to the ball, the ball wasn't there anymore. So you had the camera that would process the image of the ball, but it was too slow, it was too noisy, it was everything was very hard to make the robot really act uh, by processing its own vi- Im- images. Anyway, so that's a long story. And uh, but on the other hand, it put me always onto this uh, mode of getting things that work. And anyway, so that's went from there to having like cobots, which are these robots that move down the corridors at Carnegie Mellon. Uh, they have moved thousands of kilometers uh, in uh, in our environments by themselves, not thousands, thousand and many. So 2000, close to 2000 maybe now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, again, like this goal of trying to put it all together. 
perception, cognition, and action, data, reasoning, and action. So the processing of the data combined with what we need this data for, and then eventually deciding and executing. So that was my life. That has been always my life. A lot of learning, but at the reinforcement learning level, learning at the action selection level, learning at the execution level, learning to improve perform uh, perception with experience has been, I keep calling this learning from experience, not necessarily the technique itself, whether it was neural nets or decision trees or SVNs or whatever method we use, it was more of this concept of learning from experience. And so with this, with a kind of background and passion in robotics, how did you end up at JP Morgan Chase? <laughs> I don't see many robots, uh, you know, when I go to the bank. <laughs> wait, 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 wait one day. But I'm just saying, so that's very interesting. So it's true. I mean, I was quietly at Carnegie Mellon uh, doing my research with a large group, many students, beautiful. And I was actually at the time in 2016, 17, I was the head of the machine learning department. And um, I got a call from JP Morgan um, asking, so telling us, telling me about this uh, effort they were trying to uh, start bringing basically uh, AI reasoning, AI research, really, not just applied AI, but AI research to the firm. Mm-hmm. And what actually uh, made me come to JP Morgan, which I am very happy to be here at JP Morgan Chase, um, was in fact the, the thinking like this, oh my God, this is a new area that I never thought about. And uh, it was this fascination of thinking, oh my God, I have a chance of doing something in another area. It's almost as if I, robotics was beautiful, there was a lot to do, but I, it was, I was at home in robotics. I mean, what? Right. More, more image, less image, more object, less object, more command, less. I mean, it's kind of like, but then it was this chance. And then there was this major comment from uh, the leadership at JP Morgan Chase that made the difference. They said, Many of the companies, Googles, Amazons, uh, uh, Facebook, Twitter, they were all born digital. They were all born uh, thinking about machine learning, thinking about data, thinking about computing, thinking about algorithms. Everything was born digital. But all these other uh, industries like financial, uh, health, the construction, the cities, you name it, existed well before the computers existed. Mm-hmm. So that was fascinating to me to think that I could come and I'm here to try to see how to bring more AI, my experience of AI, building these systems from beginning to end can make a difference in terms of like the financial domain. So that's basically what brought me here. And, you know, it was basic, it was uh, somehow a mixture of being afraid, you know, being like a you know, apprehensive, and also an enormous excitement to be in a different thinking mode. So these are the two things. And and the group that you run there, it's a a research organization as opposed to, you know, building churn models for credit cards or something like that. Exactly. So we try to, uh, we are a research group and we try to focus on, um, how can I say, aspirational goals. We try to, f- to focus on uh, things that would make an impact if they were solved one day. So, for example, I can, if, if this is okay, I can just share a few of the goals. We'll just focus on a few. 
But mm -hmm. uh, we kind of structure these AI research after a one year of being there absorbing what this uh, financial domain was all about into seven uh, big research goals, uh, which we call these aspirational goals, these big research goals. And they are like these. Three of them have to do a lot with the actual uh, domain itself and mm -hmm. the issues of the domain. And so they are. So how do you use AI to really eradicate financial crime, not to decrease the number of positive, false positives or false negatives, the alerts, the frauds, the money laundering, but really to eradicate financial crime. Mm -hmm. It's like the cure cancer kind of goal. How do you do that? So that's why it's part of the research. It's, it's like, how do you eradicate this financial crime and do a, a, use AI for that? Then another goal that is very important is this goal of like, how do we actually, we call it liberate data safely. How do we go about engaging with universities, making sure that people can help us? And even in the, the firm, we can all share data and can make secure computations in a way that's safe, private. I mean, another big goal. How do you go about doing this in a world full of like privacy issues and encryption issues and messiness of the data and uh, ownership of data? How do we go about liberating this data safely? The third goal is the very interesting goal that has a lot to do with my robot soccer one way or another, which is looking at this problem of the financial domain as a large, large multi-agent system. There are many uh, interacting pieces. So we want to predict and affect these large, complex economic systems in a way that we can actually make a difference in terms of like uh, understanding what uh, makes them uh, th their dynamics and what makes them actually, uh, how, how do they function in such a complex way? And so we do a lot of simulations, very re-simulations, very multi-agent simulations, uh, very much like trying to understand the components of, the, uh, of this very complex global uh, problem with all, and it's, a, I mean, again, it's a huge goal if we could one day understand how the multiple countries, the multiple parties, the, the times, virus, no virus, how can these, uh, all these things affect uh, the financial health of a society of individuals? And what is this all about? So these three goals are very much like finance-oriented goals. And then we also have three goals that are very beautiful too because they, tend, they, they capture the stakeholders of this financial domain. And basically the stakeholders are your own employees, your clients, and the regulators. And so there are these three components that you have to care about and try to bring AI to improve the life of the, your own employees to help them move up in the value chain. You want to perfect the experience of our clients, and you also want to be able to agentize or to be able to automate this policy understanding, this policy compliance, this policy uh, co compliance in some sense. So we have these three other goals that have to do with people, with rules, with handling like how do we do the employees, the clients, and the regulators well. And the seventh goal is kind of an overarching goal, which is how do we make this AI be ethical and, uh, that, and taking into account the social good of the whole story. So we have these establishing ethical and socially good AI as the seventh kind of overarching goal. So that's what we do at JP Morgan Chase in terms of AI research is work towards these seven goals. 
you spent the first year kind of studying the domain and articulating these goals. Um, and you've been there a year and a half or so. Have you made much progress in any of these areas yet? Or how are you, you know, where have you made the, the most progress? So very good question. Uh, so as you can imagine, I started one person myself alone. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, but you know, I that very different from CMU. Exactly, exactly. However, I was like uh, surrounded by two hundred fifty thousand people at JP Morgan Chase, so it mm-hmm. was kind of like overwhelming, also the scale. But on the other hand, uh, the JP Morgan Chase happened to have been very. It has been a delightful journey because of the support that the leadership and everybody has given to these kind of like AI thinking. So it has been very nice. So we are currently 30 people, uh, more or less, we are 31 or 32 or 29 some with the offers we have, <laughs> well, somewhere around 30. And uh, we kind of have worked in kind of like how we think about things is like all the projects somehow that we work on be it like us thinking about things or like uh, the business asking us to think about things are all towards one of these goals, one way or another. Mm-hmm. And now everything is in place. I'll give you an example of two because I think uh, maybe three, but I'll tell you one thing that is very, one example that, that is very nice. So uh, basically uh, we knew, I'll give you this example first. We knew that the actual uh, success currently a lot in machine learning had been like this neural net, this mm-hmm. deep learning. And uh, and we also, I also know that deep learning is very success, successful on images, on images in particular. So when I was brought to visit the trader's floor, so I was in these, uh, in London actually, I was in London at JP Morgan in London, and they brought me to this floor, which is like well, what we see in the movies, right? So everybody's surrounded by screens with all these little kind of like uh, graphs on the screens and people are making choices of sell, no sell, buy, no buy, who knows? Mm-hmm. And literally, they uh, I had this uh, tour of that floor and they were explaining to me all these things and I was fascinated, but I couldn't see anything else but images. Those screens that people were looking at they were not apples and orange. They were not cats and dogs, but they were these images of these little kind of graphs. And a lot of research has been done on applying math to predict and to this time series data, but I could only see images. So I went to my lab and worked with a few of my colleagues in those days. And we said, can we use these with a neural net to try to classify the images on their screens as buy no buy choices. And we built this system, a fascinating system. We called it Mondrian. And we built this system. We were able to use those images and with historical data on S&P 500 uh, decisions, we were able to reproduce 95% accuracy by just using images, images on uh, the buy no buy choices that humans have made. That is fascinating. I know. Surprisingly, it's counterintuitive. Like the images are, you know, kind of dumbing down the data so that we as as humans can interpret it. Why not just use the data itself? Well, we could use the data itself, but it doesn't do as well. The data needs to be normalized. Like, you know, it's more the shape that we are capturing because the data, the value five, six, seven doesn't, it's going to confuse a little bit the learning thing, while the shape was remarkable at capturing it. And But on the other hand, if you use also 
a good representation of the actual numbers, it also works. Except that because we looked at how humans made decisions based on those numbers, on the, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. on those images, the images. We, then do, we then could do images for many other things that we have been doing that are not objects, like uh, we have traditionally applied to, uh, at least in those days, to uh, uh, deep, deep learning, but they were images of other things, of other processes, of diet, of other... Uh, of other images of other visualizations of other decision-making environments. Mm -hmm. Think about the doctor also. They basically can look at your EEG data and make a decision normal, no normal. And that decision comes from looking at an image. And uh, and so it's fascinating. This concept was fascinating. And it's co this concept of associating these time series data to an image that then you can actually classify for decision-making. And we, we, it's a, that was a very nice project. Is your ground truth in that example, is it the what? decisions that the trader yeah. made or the performance no, of no, the no, 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 decisions? No, 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 Sam. The decisions the traders made. We are not yet like beating the whole world by using these images. No, we are basically. Well, you know, I'm thinking of like all of the, uh, you know, the pictures of some of these financial, um, you know, stock charts and, you yeah. know, how many yeah. different uh, kind of voodoo incantations there are about this curve crossing that curve and this shape and that shape. And um, it sounds like you're yeah. in effect capturing some of that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And I tell you, I'm telling you, you cannot imagine how much information about that correlates with the decisions is visually visible. And uh, in fact, you just said the crossing, the, the 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 shape going up, going down, the other one coming up and down, are is very visible in an image as a feature. And to the, to, I mean, to extract that from data from the actual numbers is another representation that is more mm -hmm. uh, that's different. So I basically build upon the success we knew that images had with machine learning to transform this problem into an image classification problem, an image understanding project problem. And it was very successful and it has been very successful. And I'm, I'm telling you, we are now doing prediction basically by looking at what are the, what we don't know, but what are the images, what would the future, which image would the, be, be the future that less disturb? I mean, anyway, we are able to predict the images of the future. And so it's, a, you know, it's, it's really beautiful. So that's like to show you that, you know, it's a transformational way of looking at something that is very classical, eventually making decisions by no buy on time series data, but I looked at it as an image. So that was mm -hmm. very nice. Another one that's very nice, and then I will stop, is just that uh, we also have been trying to understand this problem of a client experience or fraud or all sorts of, 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 of problems that we need to classify into, let's think about fraud, uh, from a behavior point of view. And I give you an example that is very important for us to understand. So if you and I would have been asked to classify in New York City, which of the cars are taxes and which ones are personal cars, you know, 10 years ago, you and I use only the color of the car. You and I would say yellow taxi, non-yellow private. That's it, mm -hmm. right? So there was this classification based on this feature. 
if we are asked now which cars are service cars and which are private cars, the color doesn't help anymore only. Because basically, there are all these Ubers, Lyfts, uh, Vias, everything. So now it's a question of classifying behavior rather than just these one-shot features. Because the behavior now is like, okay, this car went from here, stopped there, then went there, stopped again, has been, uh, goes like that. Oh, that looks like a service car, not a personal car. It's the behavior in some sense that helps us classify service, non-service. And we are trying to apply the same thing to problems that have been classified a lot by just looking at this particular transaction and deciding, oh, this is an amount, this goes to an account that we don't know, and just looking at that by building the behavior of these, uh, you know, these users to try to detect what can be eventually behavior that is not normal, behavior that is this, this that we can distinguish from other type of behavior. Mm-hmm. And so it became not a classification only of the transaction or only of this snapshot, but we now, in terms of research, are building these uh, representation of all these time dependencies, of all these connections in terms of knowledge, of all these um, uh, graph-based representation to try to capture much higher level the to try to classify these fraud, no fraud, to capture these complicated uh classification problems. The same, very similar to the taxi versus no taxi or car service versus no car service in New York, the same problem. And so that's another example in which we have shown that indeed by capturing how much of these nodes, these, uh, these users in our uh, network of interactions uh, communicate with each other and these accounts transfer from one to another, you are able to detect much better uh, behavior that is not uh, normal. So this is another example. And we have done also the third example I can give you just to finish these kind of like examples is that we have been also uh, basically automating the generation of a lot of documents, either for regulators or for our clients or internally PowerPoint presentations, representation as a translation from data that is in some format, like numbers, lots and lots and lots of information about transactions into English, into another representation, charts, insights, comments. And we have been automating that uh, kind of like uh, description of the data in a representation that is readable or that is formatted according to what's required to show. When you say translation, are you meaning that literally like using a neural machine translation type of a tool and applying it to this particular scenario? Very good question. In fact, we have not yet learned this translation. We are really just writing uh, an an algorithm to make the translation, computes basically all these. uh, It's like a... uh, You could think about these as a template feeling, kind of like Mm -hmm. an algorithm, uh, the template is complex. Where do we get it? We had to represent it well, and then we feel, and then we are ready eventually at some point to do the learning of what these parameters should be and how the template should move and the personalization and who goes where. But mm-hmm. it's another level of learning. It's not really learning that, you know, uh, how do you say this word in a different language? But so we built the translation 
machinery, and now we have to adjust all the parameters of this machinery through feedback and through learning, yeah, through data, through the use of this. But we build the translation machinery. And that requires, so the beautiful thing about building this translation machinery is that we try to build it in a way that it doesn't apply only to a specific task. So it is general in terms of like different types of reports. So they all require eventually the data to come into this form. So you change the data and you manipulate this knowledge in a way that you can then automate. So in some sense, I am, as you can imagine from my first days, I am always a, how can I say, an automation person. I'm more mm-hmm. of an engineering person. And then machine learning for me is like a tool to try to get this, 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 um, this automation machinery uh, adjusted and uh, personalized and... Uh, generalized. Use, exactly. And generalized mm-hmm. and transferred and all sorts of things. But uh, so the data plays the role for me as, okay, now I adjust all of these and uh, this goes to that side, this goes to this side. So, yeah, so that's what, these are examples of the three projects, the Mondrian project, this kind of like behavior-based fraud detection and this automation of reports um, out of several others that we have done. Yep. And, and do you see your charter at the bank in terms of a a time horizon like there are lots of embedded machine learning ai folks i imagine all over the bank and yeah. you know trading yeah. organizations and client service marketing etc you know that are working on immediate projects or, or is one of the ways that you see your charter as being you're in you know five to you know 20 year realization or whatever the numbers might be it's a good question so indeed jp morgan chase is amazing in terms of how much uh machine learning is being applied throughout throughout uh, the firm and Mm -hmm. uh, for classification of emails for marketing decisions for decisions on credit no credit loan all these are supported by data-driven algorithms i mean one way or another they are present throughout. It's 50,000 technologists that JP Morgan Chase has. And mm-hmm. out of those th- thousands now, or hundreds, are AI and machine learning people very close to the business. Somehow we are building this uh, understanding that uh, the, we work uh, close to them uh, we, and they work close to us. When the problems are uh, reach a level of complexity or of dreaming that cannot they don't they don't have the immediate way of addressing them we start a much better dialogue for example this mondrian thing or even like the generation of these documents automated uh, or generalized and learning from the use is like kind of something we are involved it's not yet deployed so it's while the applied machine learning the applied ai they actually are very close to the business and making sure things get immediately deployed. But our behavior, our the research we do, these steps, I mean, it's, think about the cure cancer problem. You know, the, there might be steps in which you find better chemo, there might be steps that you find better devices, and they end up, you know, getting to be in the hands of the practitioners. And so it's the same mm-hmm. thing with us. Same thing with us. For example, these things we are doing about behavior recognition and eventually understanding the network of interactions for fraud detection 
it will eventually be uh, is closer to deployment than other things we are working on. So it, we are in that uh, spectrum, and it, you know, and we we interact a lot with the business. We interact a lot with our colleagues in applied uh, machine learning, and but we still kind of live in this world of being free to how do you say to transform, to reinvent, to uh, to just think a little bit more um, without the boundaries of having something that is needed today. Now, five, 20 years, I don't know, but I do expect to uh, uh, that we, I exp- so just so we know, I expect that we produce novelty and innovation every year. Every year we do something. When do we reach the goals? Who knows? I mean, in RoboCup, we used to say by 2050, we will beat the World Cup mm-hmm. uh, human players. Robots will beat the World Cup human players. And we made that. 2050, we are getting too close to that. But anyway, but uh, <laughs> I don't know exactly when we'll eradicate financial crime. But mm-hmm. we also, but these goals, we built them to be like for 2030. And it's like mm-hmm. a 10-year goal in some sense. But is your your novelty and innovation metric is what is it, you know, direct value to the business, meaning you've come up with something and they've implemented it and it's solving a problem? Or is it... You know, is there a publishing model, for example, where you expect to be, you know, publishing in academic literature, and that's a, a metric for novelty and innovation? Definitely the latter too. Uh, we have a lot of connections with universities. We publish all our results, so we want to uh, be. We are involved in all the research activities, and uh, uh, I could like uh, tell you some a whole other conversation about our connections with universities, the fellowships we created, the research awards we created. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm sorry I did not focus on that as much, but uh, yes, we are literally uh, a research group, and yeah. so as such, we are a research group. However, I do believe that we will ma- that we make a difference also at another level of value to the company. Oh, we bring talent. You know, it's a very good like uh, we a very good benefit for our firm. A lot of talent in this computer science core and AI core and uh, machine learning, AI, and uh, computer science, computer engineering. Awesome. Are there any um, particular places that we can look for uh, publications or some of the, the yeah. work that you're doing? Yeah. Yeah. There is a, a, we have a, an external website with all our publications and I can text to you, but I believe it's just JP Morgan slash AI uh, or JP Morgan Chase. I forget now I have it the bookmarked, but I... We'll chase it down and include it in the yeah, show notes page. Perfect. And it has all this description of the goals, the publications we have done, these different pillars, everything. Okay. How how, how do you see the, the, the role and the group uh, evolving? Um, you know, you, again, you're kind of... Recently, having established these principles and kind of getting underway, you've grown pretty significantly. You know, what do you expect to see over the next few years? So we are um, a group of basically um, me heading, and then I have three research directors, Tucker Balch, who came from Georgia Tech, Prashant Reddy, who came from Google, and then Samina Shah came from S&P 500. And basically the three of them and me are the directors of this group. 
We have uh, only masters and PhDs in my group, masters level and PhDs, and we expect to grow by next year to be a group of probably 50 by the end of this year, and then probably grow up to be 100 within the next two, three years, and stay at 100, 150 uh, within uh, JP Morgan doing research, AI research in the financial domain. So uh, anyone who has an interest on doing AI research in uh, not the te- not only, I mean, or cons- wants to consider not only the technical, uh, the tech, the, the giant tech, the Googles, the Facebook and Amazon and so forth. This is a great place to be to do AI research in this particular kind of like financial domain, but in great, so we publish in great, through AI research and um, AI and machine learning. So that's what I'm trying to build is a little AI research group up to 200 people, I would say, within the next five years. Well, Manuela, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us, share a bit about what you're up to. Uh, It was great, uh, great meeting you and great learning about what you're doing. Thank you very much, Sam. And uh, thanks a lot for hosting me. Absolutely. Please be safe. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.